Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I'll be talking with horsewoman and teacher Kathleen Beckham. Kathleen is a writer, a photographer, a horsemanship coach, a lifelong student of the horse, and a farm wife. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Well, Kathleen, welcome so much to the Horsewise podcast. We're really excited to have you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm uh, really thrilled to be here to get to chat with you about horses. Yeah, me too. And uh, some of our, our, most of our, the people who will be listening to this won't be seeing it on Zoom, but I'm looking at Kathleen. She's set up perfectly in front of her, her bridles, her mercates, her bosals, and I'm just major envy of the background right now. It's just, uh, it says everything about your work and who you are, so. I love, I love my gear. You yeah. know, I feel like I worked, I worked pretty hard to, uh, to uh, get, some, get some pieces that work well and, and are nice, and some have sentimental value. I have some pieces of tack that have been given to me by teachers and friends, and um, I feel like those are super, super special to me, so I really treasure those. Tell so us about, there's all kinds of stuff up there. Tell us about one of those, one of the ones you treasure. Well, a, a really, a really fun one is uh, I uh, had some friends that I wintered with uh, for a while, and uh, I was pretty, I was pretty young and naive when I started working with them, and they introduced me in good part to Ray Hunt, Peter Campbell, um, and the work of the Ray Hunt School, and um, we were all, we would ride together a lot, and so mm-hmm. it was really fun, it was kind of being on summer vacation all winter long, you know, and I worked some too, but really I just kind of screwed around with my friends with horses, and uh, my friend said to me one day, he said, uh, I was riding this big off-the-track thoroughbred I had, and he said, you know, Kathleen, you ever just kind of let that horse go on a loose rein? And I was like, well, you know, I mean, he needs me to help him stay soft, and you know, to help him find his feet and, you know, to stay in a good shape. And, you know, I kind of want to be there if he needs me. And, you know, so he kind of turned around back in the saddle and he's kind of like, yeah, okay. All right. All right. That's cool. Um, and a couple of years later, I continued to winter there. And a couple of years later, you know, when you condense the story, it isn't as funny, but a couple of years later, I said to him, I said, did you ever notice these reins on these English bridles aren't long enough? To give these bigger horses a decent release <laughs> and he just he laughed you know he just laughed and he said come here a second and uh, I said okay so he walked in the, the his tack room and he took a pair of extra long beautiful laced reins off of uh, his bridle and uh, gave them to me oh, cool. and he said with these you can give a decent release So it's so cool. So, you know, I've got a few pieces like that. And I have a, I have a bridle that was given to me by a teacher of mine. And he said, well, it's just, it's a little girly for me. (laughs) Well, it's one of those old, like old, like circle Y or something like that, that has the silver pieces on the cheeks and on the middle of the brow band. And it's got silver buckles and, um, it's just, it's beautiful. And like today on eBay, I'd be searching for it madly, like vintage circle Y right. silver bridle, you know, it'd probably be like $500 on eBay. And uh, it's just this beautiful bridle. And I take meticulous care of it because I'm like, it's already really old. And what if it cracks? Oh my gosh. You know? 
so um, it's just super cool. I really love that stuff. Um, so that's pretty special. The gear can kind of be sort of a chronicle of kind of the journey of learning, right? So each, oh, yeah. piece, each piece is special. Each piece came from a teacher or or it was just came along at that stage of development, maybe where you got a piece for a horse. And, and who's that in the frame with you? Is that a barn cat? Oh, this seeing? yeah, this is Sassy. Um, she's, uh, let's see, there she is. Uh, she's a very good cat. She's yeah. our, one of our barn cats and she's beautiful and fluffy. And uh, I'm in her tack room. I was just gonna say, uh, uh, actually I'm interviewing her, but it's nice uh, yeah, that yeah, you're, right, you're, you're right. sitting on, she's sitting on your lap. So she's giving right. you partial exposure right. here. Yeah, so I just sort of seen a, I just seen the tail, and so I was like, "What is happening there?" <laughs> I put the dogs in the house, so uh, they can be pretty disruptive. I found out on Zoom the other day. So yeah. when the UPS driver drives in the driveway, it can be pretty disruptive. So I put them in the house, but the cats are still here. Have you been doing a lot with Zoom? Uh, I, I. I just started with Zoom about two weeks ago because I have a good friend who studies uh, French classical dressage and she has a membership group community that she runs and she's from England and she had asked me to do a talk on uh, rider straightness and uh, horsemanship and, and stuff with her uh, premium coaching group she has, which is like 12 people who she coaches mm -hmm. in a more intimate setting. Um, and so that was a Zoom meeting. So I kind of told her, I said, well, you better be ready to hold my hand through the whole meeting because I don't know how to do this. And that was the meeting at which I learned you need to have your reading glasses available <laughs> because you're not, when she says, well, punch this on your screen and it's your phone. It's going to be too small to see. So, um, so I'm learning pretty fast and I have, I have a couple of good friends in England. So I figured out that through zoom, uh, we can talk to each other for free. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. Uh, hello. Um, so it's been actually a pretty huge, a way for me to stay in touch with some good friends of mine. So yeah. I was, I'm always resistant to new technologies because I'm just very easily intimidated by them. And I feel like where technology is concerned, I know just enough how to be dangerous. Right. right, right. Um, I can get myself into trouble, but I can't necessarily get myself out. And so I tend to be pretty resistant to technology, but uh, Zoom has been, has been a really good way for me to do some of these things. Oh, you know, I have found that like sometimes technology and horsemanship is kind of not blended together well, just in the sense that sometimes people are so focused on, I want to take that perfect Instagram shot of myself having a moment with the horse rather than just having a moment with the horse mm -hmm. or they get a little caught up in chronicling something instead of just being in the moment and being able to just be aware of what's going on subtly beneath the surface. The bottom line is when we stop and take a photo at that time, we've kind of, we've left the classroom a little bit. Right, you've taken yourself out. You're taking yeah. yourself out. But what's been kind of cool about the pandemic is that now as a teaching tool, I think it's brought a lot of people to horsemanship in a different way, Is it just as a teaching tool. So it's been kind of interesting, a little bit ironic, that, that twist on it. I've taught and coached using online tools for a while now and I find it really personal and useful, but I've been hesitant to take it bigger. And now it just seems like it's pretty straightforward 
and it, well and it's 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 the time you know yeah. because you know i think i think the idea of the world going back to quote unquote normal you know is is probably not really going to happen at this point and a lot of the modifications that people have made because of COVID-19, some of those modifications, they're gonna to wanna to keep with or without the virus, exactly. you know? Yeah. And so I think there's there's a bunch of things that are gonna change uh, just because, you know, people figured out it, there was maybe a better way to do things. Right. You know, whether that's slowing down and unplugging or, you know, maybe for me actually plugging in, you know, like I live in a rural area there aren't a ton of horse people around here and um because we're on the south side of atlanta most of the horse stuff is goes on on the north side of atlanta mm -hmm. which means you have to take your horse through atlanta which means that six uh, months of the year you're not going to do that because if you get stuck in traffic and it's 95 degrees with 95 percent humidity you could cook your horse in the trailer you know in no time flat so you you know we don't have access to a lot of horsey type stuff um where we're at because we're pretty rural and uh, you know using technology though you know I can tap into people who otherwise I, I wouldn't have access to them and you know I hope the same will be true that you know there are people that will find that they can have access to me right that they might not have had access to me you know otherwise so I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff that comes out of it where horse people are concerned because we kind of get set in our ways of how we do things, you know, and, and in the horsemanship business, we've kind of chosen this, you know, quote unquote clinic as our main learning vehicle. And I was just lucky. I, I am just lucky that I've been the kind of person who can learn in a clinic setting because mm -hmm. I'm a self starter. I'm a self study. I can hear something and it will spark a question in me and then I can do a month of research on that and I'll right. read the stuff and look it up and Google this and talk to this person and that person. Well, but you know, most people aren't going to have the time to do that. And so I've been the kind of person who really benefits from having done clinics for a long time, but I know there's a lot of people for whom a clinic is not a good, a good setting for them. You know, yeah. they're either too shy, or they're too scared, or it's too much for their horse, or it's too far away, or it's too much money, or it's too big a commitment, or whatever it is, you know, they don't want to ride in front of people. Um, and so I think, you know, us instructors, we're going to be able to use this technology to probably do people more good than ever, yeah. you know, through this technology. And it's going to have its limitations for sure, but you know, everything has its limitations. And, and so does the clinic format too, sure. as you just described. So sure. doors open and doors close at the same time. So it's just kind of focusing on the open doors, I think. And you had said that, you know, because of this technology, hopefully more people would have access to you who wouldn't have in the past, which seems like a really great opening to ask you who are you like tell us about your background for i mean i know who you are but for some of my listeners you know we have listeners in 50 states and like 50 countries now wow. and in case they haven't heard of you or they want to know why i have you here just give us some of the things about your background that you think are important just kind of short and fun so i am today i am a writer a photographer, a horsemanship coach, a lifelong student of the coat of the horse, and a farm wife. 
um, is basically my job description. And I grew up riding hunter jumper show horses and I thought that's what I was going to do all my life. And uh, when I was 28 years old, I had a stroke, which is uncommon. And uh, they never did figure out why or, or where that it was a clot that Mm -hmm. lodged in my brain. So I lost the use of the left side of my body. And when that happened, I obviously lost the ability I had developed to fight and intimidate horses, Mm. um, which was kind of what we did. I mean, I had the shoulders of an East German swimmer from pulling on horses all day. You know, my mom had to make my riding jackets because I didn't fit into off the rack riding jackets. She had to make the shoulders bigger, the chest wow. smaller, the sleeves longer, the, the, the skirt longer. So anyway, so she was very sweet and she, she made my riding jackets from scratch. And um, so, you know, the people I grew up with uh, were doing what they had been taught. And uh-huh. I really enjoyed it. Um, I may have enjoyed fighting with those horses too. Um, it's kind of hard to remember. I didn't mind it. I thought it was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I may have actually enjoyed it a little too much too. So I had a stroke. I didn't want to quit. I thought about it. I had to choose. Um, so I decided I was going to keep going, whatever that meant. I was going to keep going and keep, keep horses in my life. So I moved out to Colorado and moved in with, uh, my, my aunt and uncle out there because I, I couldn't drive myself. Um, I could, I could walk, uh, but slowly and carefully by then, but I was pretty, I was pretty restricted physically in what I could do. And so they lived in Aspen, Colorado and there's great public Uh, bus system there and I could take a bus to the hospital for physical therapy and occupational therapy and stuff and I got a a job at a print shop behind a desk and did all that and bought myself a horse and so here's this crippled girl um trying to fight with this horse the way I knew how and he was an off well he wasn't off the track he was an he was an unraced thoroughbred let's get it straight he was an unraced thoroughbred and I just, I didn't know how else to work with a horse, but keep picking fights, picking fights, picking fights, picking fights, picking fights. So um, I met a woman out near Aspen named Holly McLean. And uh, she said, uh, we're going to this clinic this weekend. Would you like to ride along? And I was like, sure, whatever. You know, because we had hunter jumper clinics and stuff like that. Right. Bring somebody in and they give everybody lessons. And I thought, well, sure, you know, whatever this is, Colorado style, I can, I'll go do that. Go take a look. Well, it was Buck Brannaman. Okay, so that's different. (laughs) This was like, and this was like 25 years ago. This would have been 25 years ago or so. So he was an eagle. He's been going to eagle forever. So I see this guy and I'm like, so somebody asked me the question. They said, so Buck, you know, uh, what do you do about saddle fit? And so he's, you know, he's this young guy with no money, you know, or anything. And he says, well, you know, I got that saddle over there. And then I got myself a thick saddle pad and I got myself a thin saddle pad. (laughs) Yep. And 
I, you know, at the time I thought, oh my God, you know, this guy doesn't know anything about saddle fit, you know. Well, guess what I have in my tack room now? <laughs> I got a couple of saddles and some saddle pads, you know. But I was coming from the hunter-jumper world where you got your wither pad and you got your bounce pad and you got your sheepskin mm -hmm. pad and you got your liner pad and you got your this and your that and your, you know, shim pad and all this stuff. And, oh, Lord. So, anyway... So we watched Buck Brandman that day, and I had just never seen anything like it. And that's when he was still riding the Colts and the Colts starting himself. Oh, wow. And I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And uh, I guess that's the day I figured out there was more going on out there than just what was going on in the hunter-jumper world than I knew. You know, like I knew there was dressage and there was eventing, but I didn't know there was, like, stuff other than that. Right. Um, so it was, it was pretty earth shattering. And from there, you know, I started kind of looking at stuff and experimenting with some people and some things and some ideas. And um, I took some lessons with some people that my friend Holly McLean was friends with and got to do that thing. I'm sure everybody can relate where I was able to sell one of these guys, David Carswell, he's from Kauai, Hawaii. Um, I was, I felt comfortable enough with him. I was like, David, can you show me how you guys bridle a horse? Because I'm getting the idea. I don't know how to bridle a horse. Well, I was a professional. Yeah. yeah well, I was, you know, before I was crippled up, but, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard pill to swallow when you realize you don't know how to catch a horse because it's always been in a stall. Right. You, you don't know what a round pen is. You don't know how to start a colt because you've always ridden trained show horses yeah. You don't know how to bridle a horse because you always just got a taller step stool. Right. You know, I mean, those things and, and everybody can relate one way or another. So, so I, uh, started working with um, a guy named Mark Rashid, who's from Colorado. Right. And I ended up working with and for him as his full-time assistant. Um, I worked with him for about 10 years and then I worked for him for two years after that in an internship as his assistant. And then I kind of went out on my own, did some clinics on my own, uh, wintered at my friend's place in South Carolina in the winters. And um, then kind of looked at my own work and decided I needed another teacher at that mm -hmm. point. And looked at my own holes and my own gaps in what I knew how to do. Looked at my horses I were developing and where they needed to be stronger. And I picked Buck Branham. Mm -hmm. And so my husband and I have been riding with Buck uh, for the last seven years um, and developing horses on our own here at the farm. And we buy, we buy babies uh, from a ranch in North Dakota, Sunday Lance and Sunshine Frail Quarter Horses. Mm -hmm. so they have nice, they, nice stock, yeah. They do, yeah, they just breed ranch horses, you know. And for a lot of people, what we need is just a good using riding horse, and they're nice riding horses. So we buy babies from them, and we're just, we've got this whole Petri dish here where we're just bringing these horses along and letting them tell us how we're doing in our work. You know, we've got cows here, uh, we've got horses, dogs, cats. Um, and so we use our horses in our cattle operation as much as we can. Um, and we raise commercial cattle for the beef business. We sell beef locally, pasture-raised beef locally, um, that's ethically produced and has been worked 
uh, forces, not fully owners. And, uh, you know, it's the lifestyle we want to live. And, and my husband has lived on this farm. This is, he's the fifth generation to live on this farm, wow. his family. So it was a post-Civil War cotton farm. So we'd very much like for this farm to continue through our generation um, and hopefully the generations to follow. Um, so that's all really important to us is that we're producing uh, horses in a good way. We're producing cattle in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, and the dogs are pets, so we don't know really too much about them. Right, and the cats. So, so at this point, you know, I used to be on the road pretty much full time. I was on the road nine months out of the year, eight months out of the year. And when Glenn and I met, I was traveling all the time. And I figure you don't have 300 acres of grass and 14 horses and a cow herd and spend your year on the road. Right. You know? I mean, that's, it, you know, you look around this place, it's beautiful. So why would you leave? You know, so yeah. I would love for people to be able to come to us and explore horsemanship, you know, so, and ride in the cows if they want to, and, and really sit down and geek out about the details of mm. Ray Hunt style horsemanship, because that's what interests me. So, um, so that's kind of our model here, and, and that's what we're pursuing. And for a lot of people who've been in your position where, you know, you had regained your strength, you were basically coming back into the horse world, and you were being successful, you were, you know, you had worked with one teacher very closely, you were also, at that point, I assume, teaching clinics and on the road, and then you decide you need to, to have a, a, the next round of teaching and instruction, and that's when you started focusing in on, on Buck, Brandeman. But at that point, like a lot of people might not have done that, they might not have said, oh, I wanna go deeper. And also, it sounds like, this is just my interpretation of what you're saying, not only that, when you got deeper into that line of study, you then wanted to sort of live it in a fully, you know, a way that's full of integrity in terms of where I do, where my experiments are with the horses. It's on this property that also reflects, you know, the respect for nature, for the agricultural lifestyle, also for how to raise the cattle properly, raise the horses on the cattle properly. And so that's something I find very unique about you. Um, where you share that a little differently. You could have continued to, to teach in the more traditional way um, on the road and so forth, but you kind of took it to this other level. And then also because you're a good writer and a good communicator, which isn't always automatic. You know, a lot of teachers are great teachers in person, but they aren't always articulate with the written word. But I think it seems to speak to your analytical approach. There's something about that. So there's a question in there somewhere in that whole long paragraph I just gave you, but I think I know it. I think you know what I'm trying to say, which is why did you go that direction as opposed to just continuing to maybe increase your student load and, and stay more on that kind of path? I think that um, it was really important to me to see the process from more towards the beginning because I've written a lot of the finished product mm -hmm. in various ways, shapes, and forms. And I've seen the finished product a lot. 
And as I worked with horses on the road, you know, I used to see 200 to 250 different horses a year. You know, that's, that's such a huge gift because that's a huge study group that you just get to examine and just look at, you know, it's the thing that one of the Dorns has said, right? Uh, observe, remember, compare, right? So I got to do that every day. What an amazing gift. And what I found was that these horses with problems, which was a lot of them, right? Um, a lot of them, these horses with problems, a lot of times in like three days at a clinic, we really couldn't get it fixed up, mm -hmm. right? You right. know, we could kind of get a Band-Aid on it. You could kind of teach the person some kind of coping mechanisms, mechanisms some management techniques, mm -hmm. but we weren't eradicating problems. Like if I saw the horse again the next year, it still had that problem. Mm -hmm. And if I saw it the next year, it still had that problem. And I thought three days at a time, tips and tricks, management techniques are not getting this done. So I started thinking, of course, well, how do they become this way? And that led me to think, well, how do you start horses? You know, like, how do they learn? How do they learn good, bad, or indifferent? How do they learn what they have learned? Because obviously these horses have learned these things, whether it's to rear or to jump a jump pretty or to spin or to kick somebody every time they pop up in their blind spot or whatever it is. This is something they've learned and experienced. So how do they learn this stuff? So that's when I decided to start looking into getting some babies and just going, I mean, I'd, I'd been in horses for 35 years. I figured, you know, no time like the present to go ahead and make some from scratch. You know, right. I still don't, I still don't feel qualified to do it, but you know, they're my horses and I'm responsible for them. So it, right. it's not a, you know, it's not the job somebody else would do, but it's a job I would do. And so that's when I started to figure out where these grown up horses were getting in trouble was it happened way back then mm -hmm. right so something was skipped something was installed a little wonky to begin with something was uh presented in a very frightening or confusing way mm -hmm. and the first time you present something to a horse we always used to say I, you know i have all these friends and mentors and teachers and everybody's kind of got their isms right mm -hmm. and I have a friend who would always say, what's at the bottom of that horse? What's at the bottom of that horse? So when you take all the whipped cream and all the frosting and everything off that horse, what is at the bottom of that horse? Fear, anxiety, and confusion. That's Now, we can put a lot of lipstick on that pig, right? right? right. But that horse, that little tight spot in that horse is a poisonous cancerous thing that runs through everything he does and so it's really 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 helped me figuring out these more grown-up horses of where where those things happen mm -hmm. so it and what the other thing i figured out is you can manage a problem okay so like say i have a horse who kicks if something goes in his blind spot behind him, he just can't get over that. Okay, so then I would I'd set up a world for him where nobody goes behind him, 
right? And say, no, no, don't go behind that horse. You know, and we're never going to drive him. We're never going to take him around kids or dogs that might go around behind him or whatever, right? So I set up a world where that never happens. That's managing a problem. Mm-hmm. Then there's eradicating a problem where you work on it to where it's, it's, it's just never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like Ronald McDonald could pop up behind that horse and he's not going to get kicked. That's eradicating the problem. So I got interested in eradicating problems instead of managing problems. If I could, it was just a different deal. It was a different learning curve. So the babies have taught me so much about the way a horse comes from the factory. Mm-hmm. And then you can look at a horse with a problem and the further he is from the way he came from the factory, the bigger that problem is mm-hmm. because they were made the way they were made. And the further we get them from that, the more trouble they can get about that. Mm-hmm. Now it's a herd and a prey animal just to do, just to ride him you got to get him pretty far away from being a herd and a prey animal already. Right. I understand. But when you work with an unhandled baby, you start to understand, to me, the way I look at it, and I know a lot of people look at it way differently and way more mystically, and I tend to be kind of a pessimistic-minded person. I'm, I'm not a glasses-always-half-full half kind of person. Mm-hmm. I don't write, write a lot of positive thinking means in my spare time, you know. And, and that's just the way I am. But what I see in these unhandled babies and unhandled grown-up horses, too, is how much you have to take away from them mm. to get them to live in this world that we insist they live in. I don't see it as something we're giving them. I see it as the things we are taking away from them. So when you reach out to touch an unhandled horse and you just see the skin on his whole body get three sizes smaller, like not just under where your hand is going to touch his whole entire body down to his coronet bands, his whole skin just shrinks up. And you know, in his mind, he's got the silent scream going on. No, 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 right. And, and you're touching him the best way you know how, and the nicest way you know how, but that horse is kind of saying, Hey, you know, there was nothing wrong with me the way I was. Right. You know, there was nothing wrong with me before you came along. I didn't need to get in a trailer and come to your house, you know, and not be feral anymore. I, I was fine. I, you know, it rained on me. I ate, I slept, I walked around. It was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You know? Feral was working for me. Yeah. Feral, feral <laughs> works for horses pretty well. You know, it's, it's just when we got to trim their feet and do veterinary work and you know, all that stuff that feral doesn't work that well. Right. So, so I started to see that a lot of these problems of the grown-up horses comes all the way back to the foundational stuff where things were missed. And before I, I had, you know, just loads and loads of babies coming through the farm and then following them all the way through to, you know, good solid riding horse, I couldn't recognize how far back a lot of the problems went in the grown-up horses I was trying to help my students with you know because it seems like you know another one of my friends always says everything in a horse is connected to everything in a horse so a horse doesn't just have one problem right you know it's like people say well he's a really nice horse except for and I'm like yeah okay 
you know, oh, he's fine with everything except, well, not really, because it's connected to something. You just haven't figured it out yet, but it's yeah. connected to something. The except is what's at the bottom of the horse, right. basically. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so really, really, really interesting stuff. And, and bringing young horses along is a huge exercise in critiquing your own work because they only know what you tell them, right? You know, and they have their breeding and their personality and, and whatever experience they have before they come here. But, you know, nobody else has really put much of any hands on them. And so, you know, you kind of have to get up in the morning and say, well, you know, so-and-so isn't working out so good. And you have to go, okay, well, what did I do? You know, right. I can't pass the buck, you know, right. and, and that's, that's pretty sobering because when you work on with a horse that somebody else has got a lot of fingerprints on, you can always blame somebody else. Yeah. Like, well, this happened, that happened. They weaned him too early. You know, he had a wreck when he was a yearling, you know, he was, you know, he wasn't started very well. Well, at this barn, this happened at this barn, that happened, you know, and so you can always kind of pass the buck, but there's no passing the buck, you know, here with these horses at our place. Right. So that's a good thing because it yeah. holds my feet to the fire. Yeah, know? definitely. I, I started, I started getting interested in this horsemanship when, so I do two things. I run a racehorse adoption program called Lope, which has actually now become more of an education group. We work with interns who want to be veterinarians and they want to maybe be professional horsemen or competitors one day. And the horses sort of teach them a lot. We, we say that the interns are helping them, but it's really that the, the horses are teaching them. And I also do Horsewise, which is the podcast and some horsemanship instruction and coaching. And what I worked with, the, the horses that drew me in were these x-ray horses who were coming to our farm. I was totally not qualified to work with them. You could definitely argue I'm still not qualified to work with them. And we ended up focusing on what are called the war horses. These are the horses that are still running at age eight, nine, 10, 11. And they come off the track and they, they have some athletic injuries, usually nothing that will preclude a, a flat riding career, but they really only know one way of life. And you have to have a pretty unique character to run that long, right? You can't really force a horse to run that long. You might be able to force a horse to run a year or so, but you're not gonna be able to force them to run seven, eight years. So they come off the track. There's not a big commercial market for the ones that at least come to us. And I always felt like, well, I can do no harm here. Like you literally can't ruin these horses, you know? And um, so I felt like that was an appropriate laboratory for me. And anything that I could do to, to even help in a small way would be to their benefit. So I have the opposite approach, which is where in my laboratory are these horses that, um, they end up being schoolmasters in an entirely different way. And they're all very unique individuals, but I'll never know all the layers that were at the very beginning. What's at the bottom of the horse is often their core character and a lot of braces that have been built, built up mentally and physically. And I know I can't unbraid all of that, but I can deal with the individual nature of the horses. I see it and, and keep speaking to that. And sometimes it's very, very subtle work and sometimes it's very, very physical work. It all depends on, on whether we're getting to the feet or the mind for like, how is that working? So um, I'm really fascinated with what you're doing, which is this idea of really understanding from the ground up, like how these horses learn when you are the first one to work with them, where you're putting the foundation in. 
never put a foundation in. I've, I've only tried to see what's like, there's a huge glaring gap. If I could just close that a little bit, or if I could get that horse's mind to uh, understand that there's a little bit better way to go. And um, they're really good for teaching awareness to the interns and the students because they present in a way that is, is very, um, I guess what the word would be is, difficult to ignore not always aggressive or hostile but they right. have very clear-cut feedback that they're giving you and that also goes to their personalities they all have big personalities in a, in a good way and uh so that's sort of to me like uh this other element of it and that's why i really enjoy following your work because it helps me understand even if i won't start them from scratch it gives me insight and understanding to those core fundamentals that were obviously never quite in place for these guys, but how can I maybe get them a little closer to it? Or uh, I'm obviously gonna be adapting quite a bit between their anomalies and my anomalies. I came to this in a very odd way myself. And so, but it's all related at the end of the day. You know, that's what's so interesting to me about this type of horsemanship. And anything that we can do to sort of improve ourselves, improve our awareness, our sensitivity, our clarity, um, and that in turn almost always helps the horse and then the horse ends up just teaching us more and more. So that's kind of my view on it. Yeah, it, um, the, no, matter, no matter what you're doing, you know, you had been talking in one of your other podcasts about um, doing less sooner, you know, which is kind of one of the Ray Hunt-isms um, mm -hmm. that uh, kind of everybody in the horsemanship business kind of heard of um, doing less sooner so that you don't have to do more later, you know. Um, and then when I think of that, then I can't help but think of what happened before what happened happened. Right. Okay. And... I think that there's 110% you can't go wrong pursuing what happened before what happened happened. Right. So, you know, people will say, well, he stepped on my foot. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but there's a whole bunch of things that happened before he stepped on your foot. Right. And, and one of the things that he had to do was he had to unweight that foot Right. Before he could pick it up. And then he had to reweight it in a way that basically his weight kind of came over the top of your foot. Right. And actually, if you'd kind of been paying attention, right, you might have been able to feel and or see one of those things happen and then right. been able to guess what was going to happen after what happened happened. Right. So I think that you can only be aware of what your present level of awareness will allow you to be aware of, right? But I feel like since about 20 years ago, say I started pursuing what happened before what happened happened. Like it's, it's my mantra when I get up in the morning, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to do today, but I'm going to work on what happened before what happened happened. You know? mm -hmm. Like, what happened before the truck stopped working? What happened before the cat got sick? Mm -hmm. What happened before my dog got run over by a car? You know, what happened before that horse actually colicked? What happened before 
that gate ended up being open and it's not supposed to be. So like before that gate ended up open when it wasn't supposed to be, is there was a jingling noise of a chain when there shouldn't have been, right? So if I had been painted, now if I'm on the mower and I don't hear it, then right. you know That's, I'm not yeah. to blame. But if I'm walking around on the farm and I hear a chain jingle, you bet I'm going to be tracking down what changes changing, right? Because right. that's what happened before what happened happened. So, you know, just like before the horse got bunched up and got really, really bothered, something happened before that. Now, I may not be able to feel it today, right. what he did before he bunched up, but maybe tomorrow I can feel what he did before he bunched up. And then I can be even a little earlier. And the earlier I am, then the less I can do right. and make a difference. Right. Whereas the later I am, if I'm really late on the uptake, you know, it's the veterinary example. The further into that colic that horse is, the more you're going to have to do to save him. Right. The earlier you are, you know, maybe he's just going to become a banamine junkie, you know, right. for a day or two, and then he's going right. to be okay. Right. You know, but the, it's that thing where you can do less sooner or more later, you know, and, and our goal is to get good at what happened before what happened happened so right. that we can do less sooner. And, you know, there's things happen all the time to me that I think, man, that was out of the blue. And I think, wait, no, no, no. It was just outside of your current awareness. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Tomorrow's another day. Right. No, that's, we can that's try really, again tomorrow. Yeah, that's really good. And uh, awareness is something that you can develop and grow if you focus. That doesn't mean that you become like this incredible omniscient thing where you hear it, you know, you expect yourself to hear and know all, but if you take it as a goal, like you're saying, I'm going to work on what happened before what happened happened, right? If you wake up with the goal and say, I'm going to hone my awareness today in one area or two areas, and I'm going to just have that in the back of my mind to, if I find myself rushing, the whole concept of being early is so you don't have to rush and be abrupt, right? <laughs> so I, I'm a high energy person. I'm always like, you know, things are going on in my mind all the time. And it's like, if I can just understand that that's probably going to be not only inefficient, but it's going to prevent me from actually seeing things. It's like, it, there's, it's, a, it's a circus in here sometimes. It's really colorful and there's just lots of lights and all kinds of noise. But when I kind of put that to the side, it's amazing what will filter in. And I had a good example of this. I was, um, I was leading a horse right off the track. Um, he was a sweet horse. Uh, he'd run a little bit too long. He was only seven, but that's still, he was probably a little too long for him. And we've been just taking him up to the main arena. He could see some horses that were in lessons at this barn, just kind of letting him see the world a little bit doing some very mild groundwork and then putting him back up. So that work was this very simple thing. He was still a little stiff from the track. So it was not the type of situation where I'm like, I'm going to work you through something. I'm just going to expose you a little bit, kind of get to know you a little bit. And I was walking with someone else and I was watching in the, in the arena, there was a lesson horse, really nice horse. He was a Mustang and um, kind of a little short legged guy. And they were about to ask him for a trot. And I knew he had kind of a staccato trot. And I kind of was with that horse, the one at the end of the lead rope. And it's a fair distance away, right? But I kind of got his attention. I sort of set his feet up a little bit. And when that horse started to trot, even though he was a fair ways away, that sound 
freaked out the ex-race horse because at the track they're used to hearing horses come behind them but they have a very different cadence to their strides that kind of cadence felt like an injured horse or a horse that might be in trouble or that was scared even though the mustang wasn't it just to him it sounded like a jack russell on crack he was like whoa but i knew that might happen so i just had that horse kind of thinking about it and i just rolled his hindquarters so he could see and he was like okay nobody's dying over there but even like two months ago i wouldn't have even caught that right it was just one of those things because i've been working on sort of quieting my own mind not to be like you know disney zen weird but because it's very practical for these horses if i can spot something that might happen and get the horse just you know not like defensive but just kind of hey if you were in this position and you got a little worried you'd have a place to go and you'd feel pretty comfortable about it that's kind of my responsibility it's the kind of thing i never would have thought about like even you know two years ago so um and i would credit you know again i also want to study and you know your blog and your facebook group doing the work these are the kinds of resources out there that are very just critical and also so well done that dedicating myself to reading those kind of materials and keeping up it just sort of changes you know your awareness and your receptivity on a, on a low-key level so i would commend you for that for putting that out there well i appreciate that I, I grew up in a literary household, so I don't know if you ever got uh, Reader's Digest. It oh. used to come every month. Remember Reader's Digest? Yeah, I think so. I feel like that was like my parents had that. Yeah, I feel like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a, a one-page deal in Reader's Digest that was called It Pays to Enrich Your Word Power. And what it was was a list of these kind of obscure words and what they meant. And every month when Reader's Digest came, my mom would sit me down at the kitchen table and she would read, it pays to enrich your word power to me. Oh, cool. And um, my mom was a huge reader. And um, so I grew up around books. And uh, when I did go back to college, which I did uh, right before the stroke, so the mm -hmm. stroke kind of derailed my horse career, but it also derailed my college career, um, I was pulling a 4.0 average at a private uh, Catholic university outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin um, in English uh, with a minor in uh, communications, which was like mass communications media at that mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. um, so as an English major, I find the blog kind of format works for me because it's introduction, body, and conclusion, right. and and I can I can do that, you know, and that's I'm familiar with that. It's kind of like writing a paper, um, and I I always really enjoyed uh, that part of school. I didn't. It's funny. I'm a slow reader, um, so when we had to read David Copperfield in school, oh, I yeah. think it's like 800 pages or 700 some odd pages. I had to figure out how I was going to do it with the way I read and what I did. And I hope none of my uh, professors ever know this. Was <laughs> I, I read every other page. Oh, wow. So I cut the book in half by reading every other page. Um, Cause then I figured I could still go and pull quotes out of it when I had to write, write a paper incorporated into a paper and stuff like that. But uh, which you can't necessarily do from the cliff notes. No. So I read every no. other page of Dave, David Copperfield, I confess. Um, 
but I, you know, I did study a little bit about how to read and how to write. And so I used to do a newsletter when I was on the road all the time. I did a newsletter through MailChimp or something where I would write a short, like couple hundred words mm -hmm. about whatever subject. And it was my way of kind of, there'd be the newsletter and then my clinic schedule and whatever advertisement I wanted to kind of put with it. And I kind of got in the habit of writing those. And so as blogs kind of became the thing, right. I thought, well, I probably, I should do a blog, you know? And um, I have a couple of blogs that actually have over 100,000 reads. Oh, cool. Which just, it blows my mind. I mean, yeah. it just completely blows my mind. And Emily Kitching at Eclectic Horseman uh, found me that way. So now I'm published in Eclectic Horseman. Um, and I enjoy writing, but writing is really hard. Um, like a typical blog is about 1,200 words. Mm -hmm. And at about 800 words, I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. even even if they have just flowed into the computer mm -hmm. you know I'm just typing 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 and the ideas are coming and it's coming together and it's all organized and I'm not having to rearrange it or anything at about 800 words I'm exhausted and I have to stop and go do something else mm -hmm. and then I can come back to it later like the next day usually the next day or, or next week or whatever I'll come back to it and then uh, continue on and then finish it up. So even writing a blog is is hard, but I do enjoy it because uh, I enjoy words. You know, I enjoy the meanings of words. I enjoy putting words together. I enjoy trying to say what I mean mm -hmm. um, and trying to actually articulate something that's hard to articulate. I, I find that part of it really fun mm -hmm. um, so I I enjoy that part of it and I know that there are people who um, like to read and they like to reread mm -hmm. and then they like to read something and then take it and think about it for a while and so I'm one of those people who still orders hard back, hard books Mm -hmm. because it's hard for me to read on a computer screen for a long period of time um, because I like books. I just mm -hmm. like books. So there's some people out there for whom the written uh, is really augments their horsemanship study. And, um, you know, those, those are kind of the people I think that my blogs – are going to reach is those people who have that little bit of a classical way of learning mm -hmm. where you know kind of read think then go do right and I tend to write about concepts not techniques anyway um, which is much better. so yeah I will I like that because then no matter what style you ride no right matter what breed of horse you have or what country you're in or whatever it it if it applies to you, it applies to you in some way, you know? Right. Um, and uh, I really like that, that part of it as well. And, and what I really, really enjoy from the blogs is simply people going either, uh, I can't believe 
you put into words what I have been thinking and couldn't even say, much less get yeah. into on, onto a piece of paper. Um, I just to to see it articulated sometimes just makes people feel so good, and I and I love that. It's not just that somebody's agreeing with them; it's that they thought it was a concept that was uncommunicable. Right. And when you think that something is uncommunicable, you feel isolated. Totally. You know, so I think people um, kind of feel a sense of community of, oh, so these concepts are communicatable. That is so cool. Because then if I can communicate it, I can find my tribe and I can find community, right? Yeah. And I think for other people, um, there's just that, uh, that there's, even if they don't agree, they, they love the idea of being exposed to something different, but that has been presented in a way that makes sense. I agree. You know? And the whole thing with good writing, good writing is about clear thinking. You're not a good writer if you're not also a clear thinker. The two are really well linked in my mind. So what you describe makes perfect sense to me that you're taking the time to think through what it is that you want to articulate. Like you said, that's why 800 words is tiring because you're getting just the right words. You're really taking that from your brain, that, that concept, that philosophy, really technique is so subservient to philosophy. It's, it's not as important. If you get the core philosophy, the technique falls into place. Again, it depends on what discipline you're in or what breed you have, whatever. But those fundamentals and those things, those core principles in thinking always translate into good writing if you're aware of them like that. And so I think that's really, that's, your writing is very clear, but it's also very evocative to the situation. So if you're describing a kind of a classic scenario with a horse or horses doing a particular thing and people are like, ah, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. And then you go on to describe what's going on behind that or what the, you know, your assessment of that is or how, what's the philosophical thing underneath all of that. Then people feel like, oh, so connected to you. And also that not only are they aren't isolated, but that the thing they kind of thought about that situation was actually part of a larger truth. And so they feel like they're actually learning. They're actually on the right path. And that can become, I think in horsemanship, people can feel like that sense of, I think I'm on the right path, but I'm not sure because it's not a technique necessarily, or it's not something that I can say, oh, I must've done that right because I've got a blue ribbon. It's a lot more individualistic between the horse and the handler and the rider at that moment. So blogs like yours and Facebook groups like yours sort of validate that, that searching, that sort of uh, searching with integrity and not so much like how quickly did you get that horse to quote yield its hindquarters? It's more like, well, what is this overall picture? What happened first, you know, before that horse was tight and rolling the hindquarters? So the, I know that I often, with my students, I'll be working with them and they'll be like, I kind of had this feeling that this horse was maybe not going to do this well, but I don't know why. And I'd be like, okay, well, why did you have that feeling? And what, what were you seeing? And what were you observing? And then we would kind of talk it through in a very long roundabout version of what would be probably a very succinct blog post by you. And the student always feels better for working it out, you know, and so you're guiding that process, which is really cool. Well, and I think today, you know, one of the issues we have in horsemanship today is that 
people actually have too many choices. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are a species that, although we love choice and, and we think it's so important to our individualism and our freedom and our blah, 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 all this stuff, at the end of the day, most human beings are paralyzed by choice. Mm -hmm. You know, we are just absolutely paralyzed by choice. And I feel like if horse people could decide on philosophies, mm -hmm. right, rather than trainer loyalties or discipline loyalties or breed loyalties, all these loyalties and, you know, say I'm a quarter horse loyalist, right? Okay. Um, then any trainer who's approved by the AQHA, then I'm going to say, well, I'm a, I'm a quarter horse loyalist, so I'm willing to train with anybody who the AQHA puts a, a stamp of approval on. Well, okay, then I better, you see, if I don't have, if I'm not working off of a philosophy, Right. I can quite easily go the wrong direction. Super you know? easily, yeah. Whereas if I can, you know, back in the day, oh, in the old days, the really old days, when, like in the days of uh, the magazine before Eclectic Horsemen, the Trail Less Traveled days, um, there, were, there used to be this email discussion group, and it was one of the very first horsemanship email discussion groups anywhere in America. And so I was on that thing and I watched it and watched it and watched it and watched it. And the big thing was clinic reports back then. Ah. And so it was a lot of clinic reports. People would go to a clinic and they would report everything. It would be pages and pages and pages and pages of everything that happened, everything that was said, everything that was done. And nobody does those anymore. I guess we're kind of over those. But um, the other thing, there used to be discussions about guru worship. It was seen as a bad thing. Yeah. So this is just as the horsemanship world was picking clinics as our chosen method of learning. Um, in the early days, there was this kind of academic question of was, was guru loyalty going to create problems with our learning? And Nobody ever talks about that anymore either. There's all these, just like we don't talk about a horse filling in anymore. That's an old term. We don't talk about anthropomorphizing. These are all words. See, this is my pace to enrich your word power. From yeah, totally. Reader's totally. Digest. These are words that I learned from the Trail Less Traveled before it was Eclectic Horsemen. And these are words I learned in the horsemanship world. Right. that are no longer used you know we just we kind of over it we're past it we, we kind of we don't talk about these things anymore but there were these questions about um guru worship and therefore there's this discussion of well if you then pick a philosophy then you have several teachers to choose from right and you're going to choose maybe a teacher whose teaching style works best for you or whose schedule suits you or that you have access to or whatever. But um, I think if my blogs can help people define their own philosophy, mm -hmm. whether it agrees with mine or not, because my blogs may help somebody 
decide that their philosophy is completely opposite from mine. And that's great too. That's okay. It serves its purpose. You know, that's why we have Democrats and Republicans, you know, Christians and atheists and all that Mm -hmm. all all down the line, the yin yang symbol. Right, right. You know, you need opposite, you need opposites in the world to kind of make the world go round. Um, So I think that um, the blogs have been really useful for exposing people to uh, concepts rather than techniques yeah and and philosophies rather than dogma hopefully right totally totally well and i'm big on philosophical foundations and approaches versus techniques because i i saw a lot of x-race horses go into a variety of homes a variety of uh disciplines all of that and one of the things I discovered that was really interesting early on was that sometimes a less experienced owner who had a good feel would do so much better than a professional trainer who you would think automatically that's got to be the better person. And, and it got down to these core principles. Um, a lot of the horses that I worked with off the track, they were so used to being rushed, 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 rushed all the time. And sometimes a professional trainer who's making their living in, you know, producing jumpers or eventers, they would inadvertently be rushing too. So I thought that's how you get the job done. And then the horse would actually not do as well, even though it's an X-race horse and it should be good with going fast. So I always found that really interesting. And this is when I had, I had no background. Like I said, I had really no, absolutely no authority or business doing that, but that's how these things work out, right? But because I didn't come from a particular uh, training discipline or even any kind of professional background, all I knew how to do when I would work with the horses as well, I'm just like, well, this is what the horse seems to be telling me with his body language. Or, you know, maybe someone else would be, you know, making this horse go through jumps, but I feel like this horse needs to go slow right now. Maybe we need to work on some little thing. Um, that horse seems to be learning something. Or this horse, he needs to go fast. Like he needs, he doesn't want to do things slowly. He's a quick learner. So I need to do something with more variety for this horse. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to figure it out in the moment because he's saying he needs something a little more challenging, a little more interesting, not necessarily a hot horse, but just horse. So because I had that approach, I, I was able, I think, to maybe just discern some things because I was outside of that professional world. I was outside of judging it that way. And then as I started to learn more about, hey, there's actually a whole school of thought behind this, I was very drawn to that as opposed to more of a, um, a guru thing or a, um, a technique thing. I saw a lot of nice horses with nice trainers who the technique just didn't fit them. And that can happen too. Just like people, different kinds of people have different learning techniques or whatever it is, like they have to, you have to adapt to them. And I always find that really interesting too, this idea of, as kind of the the human the more responsible you know member of the partnership we can adapt we can change what we're trying to teach how we're presenting it and it's a big responsibility and it takes a lot of ongoing education on our own parts but if it's if you do it it's just so rewarding because then you can you can you can change it's just like working with different kids if you're a, a teacher you know in the schools so I'm getting a little off track. It's just something I'm kind of passionate about was just this idea of, again, this overall philosophy, this idea of what are the core principles behind what you're doing and 
all of the things that kind of came from the Dorrance and the Ray Hunt sort of world really resonated with me, even though I had so much less standing than people who'd been in the horse world a lot longer or in a more traditional way. So that's how I got super passionate about it. And I'm also, I love to write as well. And um, after I had been through some significant experiences, I wrote a book about it that was basically about what, what drew me into this world, what these horses taught me and how it was totally different than what I would have ever expected, you know? Mm -hmm. So all, putting that all into, into words is what helped me understand better. You know, going to the trouble of that helped me understand better what it is I was actually learning and then attempting to share with other people, of course. So, yeah. I, I think that um, it's funny. I say to people, you know, with these young horses here, I say, you know, it's, it's too bad people don't get to say, see the day to day you know, which is kind of the minutia, it's kind of the watching grass grow part of it. Mm -hmm. And because our goal is to end up with a whole bunch of horses that look exactly the same, but each one of them is gonna get there a different way. Right. And and that's the that's the interesting part of it because I think one of the things that professional horse people probably think about is, oh, well, I could never work in an office because you'd have to do the same thing every day, right? And we don't necessarily see that actually a lot of us do a lot of doing the same things over and over again. And a lot of the same, a lot of the same techniques, a lot of the same ideas, you're doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, like as many times as I put a lariat on a horse's foot and picked it up, you know, until he stops kicking and then put it down and then pick it up until he stops kicking and put it down. But every time I do that, it's actually different mm -hmm. because each one of those horses is kicking in a different way. Mm -hmm. And some of them, don't kick until the third or fourth time you pick up their feet with the rope three or four days into it and then the kick comes out mm -hmm. you're like well no wonder the trimmer hasn't mentioned anything because he's never there long enough for the horse to get started on it right mm -hmm. but wait until you try to shoe him that's when it's going to come out because he's going to have to keep that the, the fairy's going to keep up, at it yeah. longer right. yeah right so so i think you know I'm trying to produce a uniform product, a uniform thing. And the hat trick is that in order to do that, I have to be willing to do it a way I've never done it before. Right. Any, any day of the week, any given day, I can need to do it different than I've ever done it. You know, so this year we got four, uh, yearling colts from um, the Freilix up in North Dakota and one of them uh, cut his leg um, three days before he was going to ship and it was, it was it was just the skin he didn't get the tendon or anything but it was a lot of skin you know mm -hmm. I mean it was it was a lot of skin to grow back and so I doctored it for about two months I was wrapping it 
hosing it and wrapping it. And we were trying different combinations of things. And it's, it's healing, you know, it's doing the best it can. It's doing okay. So my vet finally said, you know what, you just, you need to bring him down to my clinic and I need to get him in this cold salt water spa. It's like having him stand in seawater, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so this is a range baby. He's barely, basically halter broke, right? And every time we mess with him, we mess with his leg. And right. so he, he's not into it. You know, yeah. I'm having him wear a breakaway halter just so I can get him caught up. Because when I was putting the halter on and off and on and off, it was kind of becoming its own thing. Right. And I yeah. thought, you know what, I'll just put a breakaway on him and then I can just walk up to him and rub on him and just gently just get a hold of him. You know, it'll be, it'll be way better. So anyway, so I was like, okay, well, let's give him the best chance possible. Right. So I've never taught a barely halter broke range baby, how to go in a saltwater spa. So basically it's a box about the size of a single stall in a straight load horse trailer. Wow. And they walk into it, they close it, they seal it, and he can stick his head out over the gate in the front. And it's the top of it is open over the top of the horse. And then water comes up through holes in the rubber mats on the floor. Oh, geez. And, and then it's like a hot tub. It bubbles. Wow. Right? And it's cold. It's like 34 degrees or something. It's cold. And it comes, you know, and, and for him, they adjusted it lower so it wouldn't go up to his belly, but it goes up over their knees. Wow. And so I thought, oh, dear God, you know, well, <laughs> um, okay. So, and, and they did drug him the first couple times they did it. But, yeah. and they, and they do with the grown up horses too, because it's a pretty freaky thing for them to have happen. But, um, I thought, well, now I'm doing something I've never done before. It's kind of like trailer loading, but not really, right. you know, I have no real way to prepare him for it. So right. I'm, I'm kind of making this up as I go along. And, um, my vet said he did really, really, really well. They, they gave him a little bit of tranquilizer the first two times, and then he was able to do it without any tranquilizer. So he did really well, but, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's really interesting to me because then all you and the horse have to go off of is the feel you're offering each other. And the additional challenge is I have to do it in a way that it's going to transfer to other people very quickly. Right. It can't be, that horse cannot be dependent on me personally. Right. And that's really important to me because I don't want to create one person horses. Right. Um, I, I know that there are one person horses out there. I don't want to be responsible for creating them. And that to me is an added challenge. So I knew that that colt was not going to be handled with the same feel that I offered him and I needed him to be able to live through it. Right. And with as little damage right. as, to his feel as, right. as possible. Um, I have a, a mare here who's basically a, a feral broodmare and I've always thought, you know, I could get her so that she's good with me, but what happens if I'm not here? 
right. and I'm the only person who can catch her and right. something happens, you know, I, I can't, I can't have her only be good with me. I, right. That feel has to be able to transfer somehow within reason. Right. Um, for basic and, safety. Yeah. Basic yeah. safety sake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I've got to be able to explain to her, hey, here's this guy who's perfectly nice. He's going to trim your feet. Right. And he's not me because I don't trim feet. Right. You know, and then here's this guy who's going to give you your shots and take your blood for your Coggins. And you only see him once a year, but he means you no harm, even though he's going to pinprick you. Right. Um, so that to me is a really pragmatic thing that's also really a very complex topic at the end of the day mm -hmm. is, I mean, talking about transferring feel or transferring an understanding that has behind it a completely different feel. I mean, that's asking a lot of a horse. And that's but to me, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, it's, and it goes back to that concept of filling in too, where if a horse is gonna be able to discern feel or in, maybe if you wanna get into this idea of intention, but we're basically trying to teach the horse to fill in for people who might not have obviously the same feel that you do but they aren't coming in with any type of malintent or mm -hmm. obvious incompetence that's setting the horse up to get in trouble. And that idea of filling in, I think, is just an incredible topic in and of itself. I wanted to tell you that we've been talking for over an hour. I don't know if you if you're <laughs> oh, keeping no track way. of that. Yeah, and, no. and, and, and because of that, you know, I'm going to draw this to a close, but I would really love if we could maybe talk even just like once a month where we pick a topic because it's obvious it's so easy to talk to you and you have so much to share. And um, also, it flew by for me too. And I'm the one who's the timekeeper. Like I'm supposed to be keeping <laughs> track and making sure that the guests aren't bored. And I got totally caught up in the conversation. So, um, and the, during the conversation, there were like five or six topics I've been taking notes. And then I realized if I were to follow up on all these, we'd be on here for another two hours. That's how easy Gosh. it is to talk to you. So, yeah. Well, I, I will tell you, I'll tell you a quick last little story as I was on my honeymoon with my dear husband. We got married seven years ago. We've been married seven years. And so we're driving up the Pacific Coast Highway in a red convertible. So we had our honeymoon in uh, Napa wine country and just spent just time just exploring the coast up there in California, which is gorgeous and was super fun. There's lots of great places to stay and lots of great food and, and wine and everything. And uh, so he looked over and he said, uh, what, so what do you think about? And I said, well, I was thinking about that warm blood we got at the house and maybe if I got her to turn into the round pen fence, that might cause her to do blah, 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 blah. I hadn't tried that yet. And he said, so basically you're thinking about horses all the time. <laughs> and I said, now we're already married, right? We've already, right. We've already yeah. got. He can't get out done. of it. Yeah. And I, I, I looked at him and I said, oh my God, is that a problem? And he said, no, no, it's not a problem at all. <laughs> I said, Ooh, okay, wow, that was scary for a second there. Because that's you know, the deal. That's not changing. Yeah. No, no. And, and so that is really all I think about. So, and, uh, and, and I love to download some of it sometimes because then it just gives me more to think about, you know, while I'm out here doing my thing, you know, there's you know, filling a water tank, you know, I can think about a lot of things while I'm filling a water tank, Yeah. you know, cause I have to stay with it or I'll forget, you know? Right. So 
I like to, you know, mull things over. So, and to be able to share that with other people, if it might, that's the whole thing is the point of a teacher is to save you some of the mistakes they made. Absolutely. You know, and if I can save somebody some of the heart ache and heartbreak, you know, that has just about done me in, um, that sure makes it worth it. For know? sure. I always say that I don't want anyone to learn as hard a way as I did. And I didn't even learn that much. I didn't even learn that much. So I'd like you to learn more easily and learn a lot more than I did faster. That's kind of my yeah. goal. And, yeah. um, and it's so, it's so much fun to do that, to help people get down that road so much faster than you did or without the, the scars, literally and metaphorically, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like team, team bad decisions over here, right? Let me, let me, please, please listen to me and avoid these pitfalls. So, well, Kathleen, we definitely have to have you on again for sure. Maybe we could do like a short half hour horsemanship chat or pick a topic and do that, you know, once a month or once every few weeks, because um, I know I'm, I feel like this has just been great for me personally and really enjoyable. And I'm sure my listeners will feel the same way too. So, well, I sure hope so. And, and I, I enjoy, I enjoy thinking about horses. I just love, I love being with horses. I love thinking about horses, love doing things with horses. So, you know, I just, I just love all of it. Well, thank you so much for being a guest and I hope to talk to you soon, Kathleen. All right, let's do it. Okay. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview with Kathleen and you'd like to learn more about her work, I highly recommend her Facebook group page, Doing the Work, as well as her blog post website, which I will post links to in the show notes. Kathleen also offers studycation opportunities at her farm in Georgia for hands-on teaching and coaching with her. And she's just a great person to follow if you're interested in horsemanship in general. And Kathleen and I were serious about coming back together and doing a shorter podcast on a specific horsemanship topic. If you were interested in hearing Kathleen's thoughts or insights on a particular topic, please send me an email at horsewisecoach at iCloud.com and we'll take your suggestions into account. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I hope you have a wonderful day.